Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Geek Roulette. I am one of your hosts, Mike Spraggle. And I'm the other host, John Lundquist. How are you doing, everybody? Yeah. And one, I was listening to our last podcast and we had that horrible gag in there where we had just the fake audience and everything. We avoided it this time. Yeah, but you still brought it up though, so it's still kind of lurking there. Yeah, but I like to at least show that where there's growth. I mean, we, I don't want to have a bad, dumb gimmick at the beginning of each episode. Yeah, very true. Very well, true. Unless this is the bad, dumb gimmick, as we always talk about, how at the beginning of the episode we always just have that one weird, awkward thing that we just can't let go. Yeah, awkward beginnings. Story of my life. Anyhow, for today's episode, we are going to discuss the growing trend over the past, I would say, several years of board games and how... Uh, more board games have permeated into adult culture where now it's there's so many new board games out there where adults can get together that you know when you say board games most people think of Candyland, Shoots and Ladders, or Sorry, or the dreaded and more previous adult versions, which would have been of course Monopoly and Clue. So uh, well, that's fine. I mean, you know, potato potato, everybody has their things, so we're gonna discuss that. Um, and just how it's become a big part of just a new way to socialize. Um, before we get into that, let's talk about some recommendations. One recommendation that I have that if my esteemed co-host can watch, can get through. So help me God, I'll, I'll do a podcast on this. Uh, just finished binging through Love, Death, and Robots and Netflix, the series from uh, produced by David Fincher. It's an animated anthology series about just various different types of sci-fi or you know geek based like stories all different animated styles all different themes it's great i I feel there's only just there's 18 episodes total no more than probably about 10 to 12 minutes per episode i only think there's really a few weak links i would honestly say that you know a few episodes back we were talking about adult animation this definitely falls into that category and i feel it feels like the just the love child of if heavy metal the movie you know had a kid with liquid television from mtv that's exactly what it feels like so that's my strong recommendation uh definitely great well worth the time and all you got to do is invest in about three three and a half hours to watch it yeah i've also heard pretty much nothing but good things about that on several podcasts i listen to some of the hosts have checked it out and recommended it and pretty much said exactly what you had with the connections to heavy metal and liquid television so yeah i'll have to get that taken care of the next few weeks here and then we can maybe do an episode on that so there's a heads up everybody check it out if you want to be in when we get to that one um my recommendation i just finished up uh, an audiobook actually the first audiobook i've done in quite a while i did dune by frank herbert um an older one from the mid to late 60s if i'm not mistaken there have been a few movies of it uh TV miniseries, I want to say, on sci-fi. Um, it was good stuff, a little hard to get through it sometimes. It was very reminiscent to me of Game of Thrones when I read that for a few reasons. It's very complex, very, you know, it might take you a couple times to start it out to get through it, which I suppose, you know, doesn't necessarily help with the recommendation, but once you get into it, it does get very interesting. The characters are great. The world of uh, Arrakis is very interesting. It's one that I'd like to see more of. Um, there's quite a few more books, so I might get back into those. Um, it's also interesting with the Game of Thrones thing, the plot itself, there's quite a bit that's, uh, a lot of similarities there, so if you've read the books or even just watched the TV show, um, definitely check it out, um, I think George R. R. Martin was definitely inspired by, uh, the world of Dune and Arrakis and all that, um, and there is a movie coming out, I believe, in 2020 that they are currently filming, which is kind of what kicked me in the butt to read it, because I've been meaning to get to it for quite a while, and I... 
there was like a two-week span where they were just announcing, you know, casting, and it was just like big star after big star, like Dave Bautista's in it, uh, Oscar Isaacs, um, uh, oh, I can't think of his name, the guy, uh, Thanos, what's his name? Brolin. Yes, Josh Brolin is in there. Um, so it just looks like it should be a pretty solid movie, and it's directed by, uh, I can never pronounce his name, Villeneuve, the guy who did Blade Runner 2049. Um, so yeah, so it's... Definitely an interesting read. Check it out. Um, you know, it's out there in, you know, prose form or audio form or whatever you want to do. It's uh, worth the read. Indeed. It's funny you bring up Game of Thrones. The uh, fifth episode with only one now left just aired just a few days ago as of this time of recording. I'm fully caught up on the TV series, which my uh, esteemed co-host is not... I'm caught up on spoilers. I haven't actually watched them, but I definitely check out the spoilers every day. Which you could. I think the hard thing is with spoilers is that you don't have the context. It's one thing to hear you these things happen, but I have to say that this is a quick interjection here before we move on to board games. I feel that, and I posted this on my social media, that I don't think anything Game of Thrones is going to do is going to make people happy in the end. And I feel it's like Lost 2.0, where the expectations have been so high, everybody feels things need to be done a certain way, and now that things aren't happening the way they want it, a lot of people are crapping on it. That's fine. I, I can respect because, you know, each viewer has their own intended idea of what they feel is expected of the program if the program sets up certain parameters. But I don't think that Game of Thrones deserves, I think, the amount of hate... I will say the pacing does feel a bit more rushed, and they could have probably done a few more episodes to help flesh some things out. But once again, HBO seems to have their own, you know, people that you know figure all of that out. So, odd, odd, interesting comparison when you talk about Game of Thrones. Also, another quick plug: watch Barry on HBO. It's such an amazing show. That season finale is also next week, and I have to say, nothing but great things about Barry. You will always see me uh, plugging Barry. He does. He does indeed. Yep, I called you up last night, 2 in the morning. Watch Barry. Jerk. I know. So, we're going to talk board games. Quick disclaimer here. If you hear any sort of sniffling, I am dealing with springtime allergies, which are seasonal right now. So, I have myself a little, you know, Kleenex off to the side here. I have some coffee to help out with the voice so it doesn't get too rough. So, if you hear anything in the background, I'll try not to make it as gross as possible. Tis the season. Of course, now that I've mentioned that, that's all you're going to be listening for is that... Yes, most sounds of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Let's talk board games. So with board games, it's interesting that what a lot of people's exposure has been to them. If people that are our age, there was always like a certain set series of board games. Like with children's board games, there was always like the same children's board games that were always out there and exposed to other you know kids. And then for adult, there was a limited array of adult board games. We already mentioned Clue. We already mentioned Monopoly. Around the late 80s, I feel there was a surge of party-style board games. You started seeing some board games come out, such as Pictionary, as an example. Uh, Yeah, there was Pictionary, I think. It was a little bit later, but Cranium was a big one. I think that was more mid to late 90s. Mid to late 90s, along with Apples and Oranges, I think that was also. So I feel like almost every 10 years or so, there's kind of a, I wouldn't say a renaissance, but... There's a new like some wave new, of some something. New, yeah, some new gimmick comes along, and 
it or, catches on. Or one game comes along, and then when one game comes along and does well, then everybody's like, well, let's try to do more. But I feel the past several years have definitely been a lot more different when it comes to uh, adult-oriented games. And by all adult-oriented games, I'm not talking about anything, of course, of sexual or pornographic nature. I'm just referring to the games that grown-ups can play that don't have, like, you know, juvenile objectives. Yeah, a little bit more complex than just rolling the dice and moving your character across the board. Yeah, I'd, if you were to look over the past several years, I mean, if you were to say, I'm curious what you would say, what do you think over the past several years, what what board game do you think has really triggered adults to play more board games with other adults? I think the obvious one is Catan. You know, Settlers of Catan has been a big one that clicked on. I mean, that's fairly old, actually, but I think it didn't really click until, you know, probably the last decade or so. Um, I think that one, I think Ticket to Ride is another big one that a lot of people have, you know, jumped on and it's you know fairly easy to pick up and has gotten a lot of people in. Um, I, I would agree definitely with both of those two right there. I think those are games that have helped adults get back in. And as well as I think they're good family-based games as well where you can play with your family. I think if there's one other game that you really can't play with your family as much, depending on how the age of your family, but has also helped boost and uh, jumpstart a lot, I would say Cards Against Humanity as well is another one where at first maybe it was a novelty, but it's something that I think that, you know, if you have adults together, they're all having a few beers and everything. It's one of those games that's very fun to play. Yeah, I think that's definitely one that kicked off almost a little subgenre of uh, of board games and definitely has a huge presence. Right. I, I think, you know, you're seeing a lot more of board games become a part of a culture. Like here in the city that I live, uh, one of our local tap rooms has a board game night. There's a lot of also other tap rooms I know in the area that have board game nights like once or twice a month, depending on, of course, you know, what other things they have going on. So it's become a new way of socializing. I think I wouldn't say that it's replaced other things like other geeky avenues such as uh, Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, other no, types. I think, it's, I think it's more supplemented that and it's become, you know, something that anybody can get into. And I think the ones that tend to do the best are like, you know, like your Catan and Ticket to Ride and Cards Against Humanity. They have kind of an easy entry, you know. I mean, you don't need to you don't need to have, you know, two nights of learning how to play. Like, I think that's one of the things with Dungeons and Dragons. A lot of people who started early, you've got that character creation night, which, you know, can be a little bit tedious, but you kind of have to get through it to get to the the more fun part of actually playing it, where something like Cards Against Humanity, it takes two minutes to explain how to play, you know, Ticket to Ride takes a little bit more to explain, but, you know, still not much. You can be playing in ten minutes and everybody knows what's going on. And, you know, they've kind of got that easy-to-learn, you know, hard-to-master type thing where you, anybody can play it, but, it, you know, there's a level of skill that you need to do really well at some of those. I think the other thing that's very beneficial to some of these new games that are coming out for board games is that you have games that allow several people to play at once, which is a lot more inclusive. Now, one thing I'd say that board games hasn't replaced, and it will never replace, it's its own genre, but I think in the mid-90s you saw collectible card games such as Magic the Gathering uh, become very pronounced, and Pokemon obviously you know, jumped into the fray as well, and both of those have been going strong for almost 20, 25 years, where there's tournament nights for those. But those games themselves have their own niche, and it's always a one-on-one scenario, and it's always... I, I would. The interesting thing about those two games, I've played Magic the Gathering. I've never played. Well, I've played Pokemon with my son, but nothing in a intense type of setting. But those games, have not as fun as they used to be. Because when you play those against other people, sometimes you go to gaming stores and find some to play with. It's all about how fast can I win. It's not about hey, I'm just going to goof around and do these things. And I think that's why 
those sometimes fall short of, let's say, the adult gaming experience because it's more about the competitiveness than it is about the casual fun. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. It's, it's a little bit trickier to find just a small group of people that you want to play with and get together and play, you know, Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, or, you know, Keyforge, some of the other ones out there. It's got that competitive nature to it. And I think on top of that, it's also got that you kind of have to keep investing money in it, you know, as new Magic sets or Pokemon sets come out. It's, you know, okay, that's been three months. Now here's another $100 I've got to spend to, you know, keep up on the newest cards and get the cool new stuff and be able to, you know, stay at the same level as everybody else is. And that's, you know, definitely a big barrier for a lot of people. I know some people who won't touch them just because they know that that's, you know, kind of part of the deal. I think the other thing that's interesting about how board games have progressed over the past several years or so, like, when I don't know, my experience is probably very for years from years when I was a kid. But I remember my when I was a kid, my uh, parents used to always have adult parties. And what the adult party was is that they'd go to somebody's house. There'd be a bunch of food. Everybody would bring your kids. All the kids would all play together, and all adults would just drink and socialize. And then you'd leave like eleven, ten, eleven at night, and everything. And probably your parents shouldn't have been driving home, but they <laughs> did because they imbibed a massive amount of alcohol. And but. They just would socialize and interact. Sometimes maybe you would see a game of charades or something like that just as a, oh, it's a fun little party game and everything. But that's kind of what socializing was more back when I was growing up in the 80s. I don't know if you had a similar or different experience than that. Not so much. My parents didn't really go out and, you know, hang out, you know, evening time do anything like that. Um, But I do remember growing up, I mean, their board games were, it wasn't something we did often, but I definitely remember pulling out, you know, like Monopoly would be around or Battleship or... You know, there were some that my parents had gotten that were older games. I can't remember. Emperor of China was one. Feudal was another one. You know, um, Acquire, which is you know still has new version that you can go out and buy today, which is kind of like a hotel building thing. Um, it was definitely something I remember fondly, but it wasn't something we did often enough that it was, uh, you know, like something we did on a monthly basis. It was just kind of you know, random, you know, okay, let's play some games. And it was, but it was always something fun and something I enjoyed doing. You know, to that extent... Let's also discuss what, you know, were, I would consider the board games that were the vanguards of our past, the ones that were always the solid ones that are always out there. And we mention them, and there's always mixed opinions on them, but like Clue as an example, Monopoly ones. Obviously, I think they're uh, ones that were prior to those that, of course, had more notoriety, starting with such simple things such as checkers and chess. You know, you had those games that were good fun games that you know nice strategic games but also just one-on-one type games and you know i think you didn't start getting some multiplayer games until you started getting to like a game like i say sorry would be one where you had four people playing um uh what was it trouble bubble what was the yeah trouble was another one i think um Life was another one that was always around. I mean, I think right. it, I think it was like the fifties and sixties. There was kind of a renaissance of where a lot of those games originated, like Monopoly, mm-hmm. Life, um, Trouble, Sorry. You know, I think Battleship was maybe a little bit after that. I think that was a sixties game, maybe, but I could be wrong. One um, one game that I think definitely frustrates a lot of people, and we actually kind of you know skipped over our arbitrary list part, which we normally do right now. We can probably get into that right now, but. One game, like I know, like as an example, was uh, Risk. Risk is a game that you could play with a lot of people, but man, nobody ever enjoyed playing Risk as much. Or yeah, I it, know that was one I always saw my dad and one of my uncles would play fairly often. But as a kid, I remember just not being just being kind of bewildered with what they liked in that. Right. So you know, there was a lot of games that we had out there. I think in the past that became the old standbys. And as I said, there wasn't a lot of innovation. Sometimes you found those fun, quirky one-on-one games like Connect Four. You could play with somebody with 
those, you know, you can only play three or four times before it kind of got a little boring after a while. And, but, you know, as time got on, I think, you know, you started seeing some innovation. I think, you know, the party game, I think Pictionary is one of those games that definitely pioneered a lot of the party game mentality. Like what you call this, you know, uh, you know, pit drawing, what, <laughs> I'm going to reference something I saw in the online and interact with somebody the other day on Facebook, but somebody made a t-shirt, which was the drawing that Kirk Van Houten made from the Simpsons episode, or they were playing uh, Pictionary, and he drew Dignity, and nobody could figure out what <laughs> Dignity was. It's the notorious episode where uh, uh, Kirk and Luann both get divorced and... Ah, uh, yes. Good old sad sack, Kurt. I'm a pretty big deal at the Cracker Factory. <laughs> I'm sorry, but crackers are a family thing. We're going to have to let you go. Yeah. So, you know, we had those games, and I think you started seeing where they, you know, realize that games can be used to be bring other people together. Now, we'll take a quick pause in here right now. Let's tackle our arbitrary lists. I think we got so geeked up about, you know, jumping into about the, talking about board games. So, arbitrary list today is top three games that you love but drive you crazy and then the top three games are just great overall concepts now what i mean by the first one is this there's games that have come out over the past several years that are fun games until you get to a certain point in the game yeah i mean there's definitely games that are frustrating to play um you know you, you kind of figure you know or maybe you figure out a rule that kind of fundamentally breaks it you know that so you can figure out how to win all the time or, or worse the, the rules become so vague that there's so much fighting over the rules that yes yeah you don't know what's going to happen and then there's some games i think with just great concepts overall that people may have not have played or been exposed to Let, let's talk about the ones that drive us let, we love to drive us crazy um why don't you go first um, for mine, I've got a couple, and it's not so much like one of them is, uh, I've got Small World as one of mine. It's not so much that it drives me crazy as that it, I found it almost impossible to get anybody to play it with me. Um, it's got kind of a steep barrier to entry. There's a, it's got a lot of different races. It's it's actually kind of similar to Risk is what I tell some people. Maybe that's a turnoff because it plays kind of similar to that, but it's basically like Risk if your army had certain powers and stuff like that. It, it's a lot more in-depth. I've always found it fun. I learned how to play it on a, on a tablet. And I've just, I've never been able to get anybody to try it out. I think we did once or twice on a game night and it just, you know, didn't click. I think because it does have a fairly steep barrier to, uh, to entry to learn how to play it. But, uh, I, I love it. And I think it's fun, but it's just, it's frustrating for me just because I can never play it. I think the problem with some games is they have game mechanics that if you have a person that's played the game a few times or understands the mechanics perfectly, it gives, I'd say, an almost unfair advantage. Some people get intimidated when there's a lot of different things that move around in a game itself. And then they like, I'm just going to lose anyhow. And that's where I think some people automatically yeah. have a definitist attitude towards that. Uh, one game, I'll mark as my number three, Clue. Clue is a weird, weird-ass game. <laughs> and it's frustrating in many ways where it's a game that... The concept of it seems fun, but the weirdness of the execution of it is like... I remember once I was playing Clue with uh, our friend Adam, and I got guessed everything in the first thing. Like we that never play Clue just two people because I asked him if he had something, and then based on like how I deduce them, I made a bold, wild guess, and I was right off the bat. <laughs> that should never happen in a game of Clue. But you know, you're wandering around, you're trying to like you know figure out you know do you have the candlestick? You know, do you have you know the conservatory? I think the weird thing about Clue is that the concept of the game is this, is that you're trying to figure out the room the person's killed, the weapon that was used to kill them, and who did it. 
I can't I, now that I'm older, I can't get over the concept of the fact that all right, wouldn't the room the body be found in be where the person was murdered? Yeah, I think it's one of those games. I think when you really look at like if you try and okay, how would this work in real life? It just it, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. How was the person killed? Well, he has a bullet wound. Maybe it was the wrench or the rope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I get it. If it was a blunt, you know, trauma and everything, all right, there's two or three weapons you could possibly be and everything. But then the worst part is, is what if, like, if I'm Professor Plum and I discover, wait a minute, I'm the killer. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those games that seems fun until you, like, kind of examine it under a microscope. And that's where it's like sometimes just don't look under the hood of a car and just assume the car is just going to drive. Yeah, and Clue's actually one of the one of the older classic games that I don't mind playing from time to time. But it's, you know, definitely very basic and, you know, but kind of fun when the... It's one I don't mind when the kids pull it out once in a while. All right, what's next one on your list? For me, my next one I have is a game called Flux, which, uh, for me, it's fun to play, but it just gets kind of maddeningly complex, which is kind of the basis of the game. Um, the way it starts out, if I remember correctly, because it's been a while since I've played it, is you start with like three cards in your hand, and you can play one card per turn, and then you draw a card at the end of your turn, but then from there, each of the cards that you draw have like different rules on them, so as you play more cards, more rules come into play, you can maybe have more cards in your hand, you can maybe have less cards in your hand, and it kind of gets to a point where it just gets frustratingly complex which is again kind of part of the game and but it just gets a little just kind of nonsensical once you get going because and i forget what the winning what 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 the winning qualification is but it gets to a point where it just kind of becomes not as much fun it just becomes frustrating and annoying and it's yeah it's it gets old Next game I have on my list, we already mentioned Settlers of Catan. And here's the thing. I like playing Settlers of Catan. It's fun up until a certain point. And that point is, is that when somebody starts doing well, then all of a sudden, like, it turns into just all these huge trade embargoes where, uh, yeah, who wants to trade for wood? Um, nope, screw you. You're winning. I'm not <laughs> trading with you. So even if you're doing well, eventually you're going to hit that wall where everybody stonewalls you, and then nobody wants to trade with nobody. So then you're just, the game drags out for, like, almost an extra half hour to, like, 40 minutes or so of you just trying to get the resources or hoping somebody else gets the resources. It's a game that starts out fun. And this is just the core version of the game. I know with the expansions and the different winning parameters, it makes it an entirely different game. But if you ever try playing Catan by yourself, you look at the boxes like and it says, could take up to an hour, an hour and a half. I've had some games take like two, two and a half hours just because just yeah, it, it hits that weird point where eventually everybody's like, I don't want you to win. Well, that's great, but then nobody's winning at this point. I kind of feel like Catan, is, in a lot of ways, is kind of the monopoly of this current generation of games, where it's it's the classic, everybody likes it, it's fun, but at the same time, it can kind of get bogged down in the rules and just the way it gets played, and it can end up sucking the fun out of itself real quick. Agreed, and I got a feeling our number ones are going to be probably the same. Yes, I'm pretty sure they are. We had some minor discussion, and I, as much as I wanted to pick something other than what was on your list, it's, it is an impossible one to kind of get out, and that game is Munchkin. Um, Munchkin, for those who don't know, it's kind of like a very bare-bones version of role-playing in a way. You play a character, you have cards, and you have to fight monsters, but at the same time as you're fighting these monsters and trying to defeat them, your other players can kind of screw with you and play cards that make the monsters hard to beat, so then you lose. And it's kind of fun for a while, but it can. I know there have been times when we've played it on our game nights where we're like, hey, we'll play a quick game of Munchkin. It'll take like 45 minutes, and like two hours later we're just 
all angry at each other as everybody just keeps dicking each other over and it just it gets maddeningly frustrating well and i think the part of it too is it's once again it's a game that punishes success because once the moment that somebody starts doing very well everybody then just dogpiles on that person i often find that the person that wins at munchkin is the person that usually it can just all of a sudden just sneak in through the back and then just pulls off like a few just quick moves and nobody since everybody's used all their anger and resources and hate pile on like one or two other people they're out yeah. of resources to prevent the other guy from winning so it, it, it just it gets to a, it's kind of one of those things like guys i'm trying to win so we can end the game but everybody else is you know kind of has that you know well i can't just let you win so they don't but it it gets to that point and you're just i want to stop the game just let me win and it, yeah it's it can be bad news. Top three games of great concepts. Now, these are games, I, ones I would strongly recommend to those that, you know, are either new to gaming, you know, board games, or want to try something different. I feel that if you already do play board games, a couple of these are going to be very easily and well-known titles for you. Um, I'm going to start off. I think one of my favorite games, I feel that works so well in so many different manners because I feel it never feels unbalanced and I feel it always does an amazing job of having checks and balances, is King of Tokyo. And the reason I have this, is, it's a simple concept. You basically pick a you know, giant monster-type creature, be it a King Kong-type, a Godzilla-type, and the goal is, is to try to occupy Tokyo, and there's many ways you can win the game. You can win by killing and defeating all your other fellow monsters so you're the last one standing, or by achieving so many what's called victory points based on things and actions that you do. It's a dice-based game. And as I said, I don't feel that this is a game that's ever gotten unbalanced. I feel that if you're doing poorly, it's because you're just not adapting to what the dice give you in the situation. Because there is so many different ways and strategies you can use in this game itself. But it's a game I've played with my children who are, you know... You know, from the youngest age of around six or seven years old, they've played this game. It's something that's very easy and intuitive for people to play, but it's also got a nice learning curve that there's so many different things you can do in it. Yeah, King of Tokyo is definitely a good call. That's a favorite in our house. Like you said, our kids, that's one that they're always willing to play. Um, I've always described it as it's basically King of the Hill meets Yahtzee, roll dice, you know, try and beat the crap out of everybody else. And, uh, yeah, definitely a good call on that one. Uh, my first one I have is a game that we have played several, several dozen times. And that is Resistance, um, and a lot of with this one along with a lot of my picks are. It's kind of a game that gets you in a certain headspace that kind of lets you feel the atmosphere of the game. I think it's kind of a, a common theme among my picks and. Resistance, the way it works, it's basically a simple deck of cards. Um, you get, I think it's what, at least five people playing. Um, and the way it works, the concept is you are a resist band of resistance fighters fighting against, you know, this evil empire or whatever, this organization that is basically in charge of the entire world country, whatever. And in your group of five people, you know, and you can play with, I think, up to nine or ten, I want to say. But if you're if you have just a base of uh, five people in that group, there are two traitors. And basically throughout the game, you go on missions and the job of the people who are actual resistance fighters is to kind of figure out which ones are the the traitors and you you figure out who's who at the beginning of the game because everybody gets a card that tells you what it is and there's a way that the traitors can kind of make themselves known to each other and it's kind of it ends up being a game where everybody just finger points the whole game and you have to kind of bluff your way through and kind of make wild accusations and every once in a while like a traitor might screw up and it, it just makes for a lot of great interactions it's a real simple game to 
learn a lot of people you know can get into it pretty quickly after you've played you know a game can maybe only take 15 minutes and you know after that you've figured it out and it's you know a good game to introduce to people with i think it's a game i think does a good job of letting you know who do you know how how well do you know how well the people around you can lie to you and there's times where like we played that game and for some reason everybody's always suspicious of me for some reason i couldn't imagine why that would be i can't imagine why either despite the fact that most of the time i'm always a good guy and a straight <laughs> shooter I, I i feel that the biggest problem i have with that game is i'm always the most talkative one so everybody's like he's talking a lot but i always talk a lot yeah yeah you can't hold that against you but i'm usually always the one trying to at least reason out things and Nonetheless, fun game. Uh, I do agree with that one. One uh, that I have that's on my, uh, another one I have on my t- uh, list is this. I feel what makes sometimes a game good is when you don't know where it's going to take you. And one game I feel that does an amazing job of that is Betrayal on the House on the Hill. And as the game goes, the way it works is this, is that it's almost like an interactive horror movie where you and up to six, five other people are exploring a mansion. And the mansion's not even built. What it is is tiles. And you put down tiles, it creates new rooms to the mansion. You walk through as you're trying to figure out the secret of the mansion. You'll find items, you gain weapons and abilities and stuff as you're going through. There's things that make your character stronger. There's things that make your character weaker. But there's tiles that are called omen cards. And each time you find a room with one of those, you have to roll a dice. And if the dice roll doesn't come up favorable, then what happens is what's called the haunting. And it's the game comes with a booklet which has 50 pre-made scenarios that... Basically what it does is like it based on what your character's current stats are, one of your characters or possibly more becomes a traitor. So what happens from there is then, you know, that person has to leave the room and then you're basically it's everybody versus that one person where you each have your own objectives to try to figure out. And the objectives could be things from person trying to open up a portal to destroy the world uh, somebody being a vampire trying to turn you to vampire somebody bringing monsters in i mean there's a wide variety of things it has tremendous replay value because of the fact that there's over 50 different scenarios i've only replayed probably one scenario that i've done on there and they have an expansion yeah. too that they've added which has added another 50 uh, scenarios on there as well yeah and that that was also on my list betrayal because it's kind of like i said one of those you, you gets you in the headspace of you know as you're flipping over those tiles and making more rooms in the house you know you kind of uh it gives you that sense of mystery and exploration of you know okay i'm gonna go over here to see what this tile opens up and it, and then you get that to the point where the haunt happens and you you get a traitor and then you, you know that person goes off in another room and the people who are left you have to kind of conspire against each other and it kind of really gets everybody in that headspace you know um I think the only problem that sometimes arises with it is occasionally you get somebody who ends up being the traitor who has not as much gaming acumen maybe, and they just end up kind of not doing quite as well a job as some other people. I think there's definitely games where you're like, okay, hopefully this person or this person is the traitor because sometimes it definitely takes a little bit of finesse to pull it off and to maybe understand the game mechanics it explains to you. Um, But it's definitely a great game. It's one I always love to play. It's oddly enough one I don't own just because pretty much everybody I would ever play that game with owns a copy of it, so... Well, and part of it, too, is it was such a popular game. When the board game renaissance happened, I like, think about three, four years ago or so, the company that manufactured the game, they ran out of inventory. They ran out in print, pretty much, where they couldn't keep it in stock. Part of that was what was called the tabletop effect, and we can talk about the show Tabletop maybe a little bit later, yeah. but... 
it was something that was out of print. Now there's like a new prints, new versions. Now you can even find it on shelves at Target at this point because yeah, of how popular pretty easy to come by. I, I have heard very good things about the. There's a legacy version of that that I've heard is very good because once you get done with the legacy content of it, that it uh, it becomes its own board game that you can then play over and over again. That's unlike any other co- anybody else's copy of the game. And uh, legacy games is maybe something we can touch on a little bit later. Sure. Uh, what's the last one on your list? My last one is an old classic one. That is Dungeons and Dragons, which you know is maybe a little bit cheating by calling it a tabletop game, but you know you played at a table. Um, shouldn't need to do too much explanation to that one. Everybody's fairly familiar with it. I think though, if it is something you haven't played, definitely give it a shot. Um, you know, a lot of gaming stores have you know uh, functions where they get the new players come in and check it out. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's one of those. I think as far as you know, if the topic that we had was great concepts, I think. Dungeons and Dragons is probably one of the greatest concepts of, you know, any game you could play where it kind of puts you in a different world, whether it's, you know, a fantasy setting or a science fiction setting or, you know, a more modern setting, maybe with spies or something like that or supernatural or whatever it might be. Um, I think it's definitely something that's obviously lasted the test of time and it's, you know, almost more popular now, I think, than it's ever been with the, was the fifth edition, I think is what they've came up with most recently. And that's doing really, really well from what I can tell. Um, I haven't played it much. I know you've kind of jumped in a group and done done that where you've gone to a store and played with some people and learned that way. Yeah, it's definitely a very fun game. I feel the other thing that's also helped making it more accessible is that you have various YouTube shows, Twitch streaming channels, and podcasts dedicated to Dungeons & Dragons as well, which also maybe helps people learn the mechanics or learns helps them understand the potential of the game as well if you're willing to listen and watch to those. So, uh, Last game I have my list, and why, there could be so many different games I could put on this list. I feel that that's the nice thing about how board games have gone is that there's so many great options. One is called... This one's a little bit very much newer game, but I enjoy it a lot because... It feels like taking a video game experience but putting it onto a tabletop. And what the name of the game is called Adrenaline. Now, with Adrenaline, it's what happens if you were to take a first-person shooter and make it into a board game. You and other characters, the object of the game is to go around the board and kill other characters. And then you get points based on you know the amount of damage you do to certain characters when they die or if you got the kill shot. On top of that, the more a person's killed, the less they're worth. So... If you want to try to pick on the same guy, it's not going to net you as many points because of the fact that this person has always been picked on. But I feel it's a fairly well-balanced game that does a good job of integrating like various mechanics. You're going around finding different weapons. Each weapon has different abilities and you know setbacks and advantages on there. But I would say it's definitely a newer game, but I, I feel it's very fun in so many different ways. So I would uh, recommend that one. No, absolutely. I think when we've played that one, I agree pretty much everything you said there it's and it, like i said with the other ones it kind of takes you takes that first person shooter vibe and manages to put it in a board game which gives gives it a lot of fun um running around picking up weapons and all that stuff and i think kind of touched on something you said i think all great games pretty much have great concepts cause i think if you don't have a good concept you don't have a good game and that kind of you know we can touch on that a little bit here with uh our next top but i think that's kind of core to every good game is you have to have a great concept so i think there's a lot of things we could have picked for these three that we had just now and there's definitely a lot more that we didn't touch on. Did we do all three of yours? Yes, I right. had D&D. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. And I forget what else now, but yes. So these are some games that we think of that are definitely great games of good concepts, but they're not limited. Some of the other better games that I feel that are out there that I would strongly recommend if you're looking for games to play, uh, one of them, Sheriff of Nottingham. 
with this game, it's kind of a bluffing game, and where you basically are trying to smuggle goods into Nod into the you know city of Nottingham, and whoever gets the most goods smuggled in or illegal goods smuggled in, and gets the most gold and points and wins. And yeah, and I think Sheriff of Nottingham and some other games I too also feel kind of depends on the group that you're playing with. Because I feel like Sheriff of Nottingham, if you're not with a fun group can definitely affect how much fun the game is because i think like when we've played it like ourselves and when i've played it with a couple other groups it's there's always been a couple people that it kind of helps to ham it up a bit like we'll kind of act out there you know we almost throw a little bit of role playing in there which isn't in the rules that you need to role play but it's something that we've always kind of done and it just makes the game i think like almost twice as much fun as it normally is and i think there's a few games that are kind of like that where if you have a fun group that's willing to go out and you know kind of go that extra mile and just you know throw themselves into it it can make the game a lot more fun than you know the rule book might intend and i think it's it's good to have a good wide varied group and i think the other reason for that too like going back to like cards against humanity that's another one that's a great game i think the interesting thing about cards against humanity is that essentially if you've not played it there's two sets of cards one is is that there's a vulgar beginning in of like a phrase or a question and then everybody has several cards they can choose and basically they turn in a card and then the person that you know reads the card chooses which one he likes yeah, best it's it's basically apples apples to apples only for adults right it's apple to apples for adults i think the interesting thing with games like that is that this is a game that really makes you under, have to know do you know your audience because remember what's funny to you isn't necessarily funny to the other person yeah and, you definitely when i've played that before you'll get a card like ooh you know and some people i need to know who knowing who excuse me know who i need to save this card for when it's their turn right so, you know, different perspectives. Another game I'd strongly recommend as well, Mysterium. Uh, it's another one of those games where you could play it with so many different people and it'd be amazed, like, what people take away from things. And once again, it's a game that's very intense on that you have to know who your audience is. The way that you think isn't necessarily what the other, yeah. other person thinks, but it's a game where you're a ghost trying to help these people solve, you know, your murder and you're trying to help them figure out various clues, and you give them cards to help that. But the thing is, these cards can be interpreted in so many different ways. There's pictures and images. So one person might say, well, I see this on here. Uh, that must mean metal. No, I see red on there, so this must mean this. And Yeah, I think Mysterium is a lot of fun. I think closely related to that, and I think it's made by the same people. And the cards they use for it are kind of interchangeable as Dixit is kind of very this, the same thing. Most a more simplified version of, of uh, Mysterium. I think Mysterium came later... But uh, it's kind of the same concept as where you have to know your know your audience, know what you're you know asking of them and what they're going to say and how they're going to reply. And uh, yeah, that's one that you, my kids love playing both those games. Uh, what are some that you want to recommend out there? I've always been a big fan. I, I enjoy playing it now, and I think it's one that's fairly easy to jump on. That's Carcassonne. Um, it's a game where you're trying to build like basically a countryside in, in France, and you get these little tiles that you kind of draw blindly out of a bag. And it works almost like a puzzle because as you get your piece, it'll have it's got four edges on it. It's square, and you kind of have to match them up to what else is out there and kind of claim you know cities and roads and farms, um, and monasteries and whatnot. And you have to kind of get you get points as you claim them. You kind of as you start, it starts with one tile, and as everybody goes around and adds on to that one tile, and there's this big sprawling you know kind of map of the area, and you have to figure out where best to put your pieces, and it's uh. Kind of one of those fun. It doesn't take a lot of you know forethought, you know, because you don't really get know what you're going to draw until you draw it. Then you kind of have to take a look at it and see where it's going to best work out for you. Um, I really enjoy it. You know, our family likes to play it a lot. Um, my sister's family went out and bought like most of the expansions for it. I think they really dig it. It's kind of one that's you know simple to learn and 
you know, hard to master, especially since you don't really have a whole lot of control of what you're going to get and what other people do. And that's, yeah, Carcassonne. I'd also like to throw out another one, since oddly enough, the microphone we're talking into is sitting on top of the box right now. I feel like you do it a great disservice. Another one that's great is Dead of Winter, which is a game, essentially, it's a zombie-themed game, but it's a survival game, and it's several people, you know, play the game, and each one have characters they control, and they need you need to get to the appropriate amount of resources and materials to keep you alive. You need to build defenses and barriers. You need to kill zombies. But... It also has the underlying aspect that each person has their own personal objective that's randomly chosen that they need to achieve for them to win the game. So it's one thing to survive the game, but there's not a true winner unless somebody actually meets their objectives as well. So Yeah, Dead of Winter is a great game. I think the only strike against that is it takes so much time to set up and tear down once you get going, but it is a lot of fun that kind of plays off of you have this group objective, but then everybody kind of has their own personal objectives that can kind of get in the way of that and you might have a traitor and there's just a lot going on i think that kind of really gets you in the headspace of uh that situation you know like a walking dead type situation so let's segue that into something here in terms of what makes a game good because i think sometimes what could be a benefit for some games can be a detriment for other games and as an example i think one of the most essential things to make a game good is that the gameplay and mechanics have to be intuitive you you can, some people feel if you may have like all these complex features in a game, it makes it more realistic. The problem is, is then you lose, I think, a lot of your audience once you start doing that because if there's too many moving pieces, it's harder for people to keep track of things. Like some board games, I know they give you little cards which give you the like order of play, like these are the things you need to do. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes you look at all this in the sense that, wait a second here, that seems a lot, very lot of complex things going on at the same time. So I think that's why going back to one of my initial earlier endorsements of King of Tokyo, I think that's why that game's great. It really requires the minimal amount of, I think, knowledge to get into the game itself. And I think games that lend themselves that there's a good learning curve where it's easier to learn as you go in there make it a lot easier. Yeah, I think that ease of learning the game, I think, is definitely something that makes, you know, if you've got a 20 page rule book you know that's definitely off putting i mean there's some games i've got at home that i really want to get into like imperial assault is one which is a star wars miniature kind of game but i have i've had that game for probably two and a half years but haven't played it once yet just because it's got this huge intimidating rule book which that's definitely the type of game it is so you can't really count as a strike against it but i think the games where you can just pick up the rule book and it's maybe five or six pages fairly easy to learn learn you know and more importantly i think easy to teach other people who maybe haven't played it before I think is definitely a big, you know, motivating factor. I think another, you know, good quality games after we touched on before is something that gets something that gets people involved. I think party games kind of really touch on this, but if it's something that gets people doing something, like I mentioned kind of the role-playing factor that people get, tend to throw into uh, Sheriff of Nottingham tends to be fun, you know, or like the, the banter that people get back and forth in Cards Against Humanity as you're playing cards. I think something that, that pulls you into it and kind of maybe gets you to do things that you maybe wouldn't ordinarily do I think is definitely a fun, uh, something that'll also make games more fun and more interesting to people to play. I think one thing that also is an aspect of what can make a game great is that when you have people out there that are just casual people that play board games, very rarely, but when they you know they do they play sometimes in just party settings or things. One thing that people hate about some games is people hate about the concept of losing and. I think one thing that you see is there's a lot of games out there that become a lot more collaborative or cooperative games that it's everybody working together. And if you don't work together, then you all lose. 
So it's working towards a common goal. Games like uh, Deserted Island or Pandemic, as an example, are great examples that, hey, you all got to work together. You all got to communicate you know, with what everybody needs to be done. Each of you has a role, and if you don't accomplish that role, then you all lose. So I think the cooperative gameplay aspect, too, is another way that makes a game great sometimes because it helps bring people together to work together instead of against each other. Yeah, I think co- cooperative games are definitely a lot of fun like that where it gets everybody involved. The only thing you have to watch out for those is you sometimes tend to get what the alpha player is, the one player who knows the game is like, okay, on your turn you're going to do this, and your turn you're going to do this. So I think it's, they're a lot of fun, but it's also, yet you know, people kind of need to be able to play, you know, make their own decisions. I think some of them are a little bit more geared to where people get to make their own decisions, and some of them tend to lean a little bit more heavily towards one person kind of making all the calls and deciding. But I think, you know, as long as you can kind of get that nice balance, I think they're, they can be a lot of fun. There's a lot of good ones, like you mentioned. I know I've been guilty of, like, you know, steering, like, hey, guys, we're going to do this, and being, like, the aggressive, but... I think that's also depends also on your players too. You have some people that are just like, well, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, and then you have other people yeah. that have different ideas what to do. So I think also the mix of players makes a big difference. In that well, game I think too. like if you have some people who are just playing, like the first time people play Pandemic, if you've got you know one or two new people who are playing with you know maybe two or three people who've never played it before. Those two or three, you know, those people who played it are going to maybe take a little bit more control just because the people who haven't played it are going to be you know, not know what's going on. So I think that's a little bit more acceptable than they kind of, you, the people who are running, you know, quote unquote running the game, I suppose, need to know when to lay off and when to let people make their own decisions um, based on what's going on and how people are, their learning curve. Um, I think another thing that makes great games, I think for me is, you know, kind of the theme I touched on before is kind of the games that make you think differently, the games that make you get in a different headspace that kind of make you think, you know, like, uh, like in Dead of Winter, like we talked about, like, you know, who can I trust? You know, is one of these people a traitor, you know, or a Betrayal of the Hill, the same thing, you know, this guy's betrayed me now, what do we need to do? You know, you've got that kind of air of mystery. Um, the games that kind of make you, you know, think more, right, you know, Resistance is another one that kind of makes you think, you know, okay, how much can I trust what this person is telling me? And, you know, what's, you know, what's their actual goal? What's going on? I think those games that kind of force you to think a different way than you're used to are, you know, the games that I t- tend to like a lot. I think maybe the phrase you're looking for is games that take people sometimes out of their comfort zone. And where it's like, hey, you know what, instead of this, you got to now think like this. And for some people, it's not a strength. But I think that's also the benefit of some board games is that, you know, if you start playing them a lot more, you start getting different perspectives and realizing the different approaches that not just can be applied towards board games, but also just everyday life in itself. Now, what makes a game bad? Um, We've touched on a few of these. This one, I touched on briefly, I think, in the beginning, what makes a game good. Game length. I think for some games, the good length of a game is usually maybe about an hour, an hour and a half or so. Maybe even 30 minutes, depending on what the theme of the game is, Where you, if it's something you can get a lot of different ones in. But I think once a game exceeds an hour and a half, there's some games that are designed to exceed an hour and a half. And yeah. those games are fun, and those, like, as an example, one game, Zombicide. Like, you could play the most difficult setting on that game, and you could be playing for three to four hours. And there's people out there that revel in that, that want to have that type of marathon type of experience of playing a board game itself. It's almost similar to, like, how Dungeons & Dragons, people get together, the average length of a game tends to be, or a session tends to be three to four hours. So if you have casual players and you have a game that goes over, I think, an hour and a half, then that's not for casual gamers. Yeah, I think it all kind of depends on what you're setting out to do. I think those games that can take three, four, five, six hours at a time are not necessarily bad, but I think it's 
that's kind of you have to have kind of a group that's expecting that. I mean, the Battlestar Galactica game I've played once or twice is a great game, but it definitely takes like three or four hours. And there's a lot going on. There's but it's a lot of fun. But I think if you're sitting down with some casual people, they're gonna be turned off by that and just you know they're never gonna want to touch another game again. So I think you know board game length is definitely something you have to kind of keep in mind. Like okay, this is a casual group. We need to keep it short. You know, and maybe ensure something longer as it goes on. You know, maybe nothing as long as like three or four hours, but, you know, like something quick like Resistance can take like 15 minutes sometimes if you're, you know, if the game goes at a good clip. Um, I think what also makes a bad game, sometimes sometimes you'll tend to get those games where you just end up sitting there doing nothing for a long time, whether it's because other players are taking their turn and it's just like if it goes around the table and you took your turn and you just have a lot of time sitting there because there isn't a lot of, interaction design but you know in the game between the players um and you just sit there kind of twiddling your thumbs playing on your phone whatever maybe you get bumped out of the game super early um i know that can be a problem once in a while with king of tokyo sometimes you get knocked out right away and everybody else will be playing for another 20 minutes half hour while you're just kind of sitting there doing nothing because you just kind of got unlucky early on or maybe you pushed your luck a little bit too heavily um so i think that's the thing is if there's a lot of downtime in a game that can sometimes be bad but you know hey sometimes that means you get to go get snacks no i I think with the downtime i think it's also matters too is it a byproduct of the game mechanics or is it a byproduct of who you're playing with because i've seen both i've seen some games which are designed that hey you know what once your turn's done you're gonna have to wait a tedious amount of time for all of this to happen versus there's others where you play games with certain people and because of how they play some people tend to be either methodical or poor at making decisions or they sit there and maybe don't sometimes understand the full mechanics and because of that it drags things out and that can be once again either pinned on the game too if it's somewhere a game's mechanics are too confusing for somebody to understand then yeah and i think something you get in preparation i think is one thing too like so if you don't do anything on your turn how much are you thinking about your next turn you know or you you always get those people when it gets to be their turn like oh what am i gonna do and they spend maybe five minutes alone just trying to figure out what they're going to do and then they actually do it and that takes a little bit more time you know i think you know using your time wisely while you do have that downtime you know to be like okay this is what i'm going to do and maybe even have some options like okay if something happens before then that prevents it you know i mean just be prepared i think is kind of one thing when you're playing games with other people it's related in some ways but others may not see it so like one thing i do is i do fantasy football i've been doing fantasy football for well over 25 years or so and john you were in my league for a short period of time and that was always my frustration too with fantasy football is that you know you do a draft you know it's a 10 person league so you pick and then you got to wait 20 picks before or 19 20 picks before it gets back to you but you always have that too when it gets to pick gets to something like oh man i don't know who i'm gonna pick like well you've had all this time what were you it's been an hour since your last pick what what if well hour jesus (laughs) actually our average drafts now only take about maybe two hours tops nice yep but i mean you have that it's like what are you using your dead time to achieve um i think one uh uh, last thing about games that I think that can make a game bad is that there's some games that there's gameplay elements that are balanced and it breaks the game when somebody figures out how to abuse. Like there's that one thing that somebody knows if I can do this in the game, I win the game because then I can just run the board or do all these things. It's funny because on Facebook you have the Facebook memories, and last week there was a memory coming up of a card from a game we were playing <laughs> that we took out of the game, and I burned because Lucky it was a game. 
it was basically a card that made the game broken. If you had it, it was so annoying and frustrating and also gave like a weird, unnecessary advantage to the yeah, other person. Yeah, if I remember right, it made your turn take super long because it basically lets you pick which cards you're going to draw. And it just you, It's a game where you kind of draw a lot of cards anyway, and so if you get to draw more, it just it dragged out the turn, gave that person an unfair advantage. And yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten we did that until it showed up in memories. I was like, oh, that's right, we burnt a card from that game. Yes, we did. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's some... It's some games like even like you know the dreaded like you know going old school dreaded Monopoly is like once somebody got like that horrible combination of like Park Place and Boardwalk and got something on there well dear God that game would be matter of ending pretty soon depending you know, on how the dice rolls went yeah me I always focused on the light blues I never really had a four I I, I am notorious I I don't like Monopoly which well do we do we want to get to that now <laughs> Monopoly good or bad. I don't care for it. I hesitate to say it's a bad game. I mean, it's lasted as long as it has, just based on I think it's not a bad game, but I just I can't stand it myself. I've kind of vowed that if anybody ever forces me to play it, I will cheat left and right and, you know, hopefully dissuade them from ever making me play it again. I think Monopoly's biggest problem is this, is that over the years there's been so many misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the rules there's been so many house rules that people assume are the real rules it's one of those games that people think they know how to play but they really don't yes and it's become bizarre being in the sense that like monopoly games could go it goes back to that thing where it's a game that stops being a casual game because most monopoly games take more than like an hour and a half to two hours and at that point you're just wishing for the game to end for the most part so i feel that monopoly has introduced a lot of certain ideas concepts and game gameplay mechanics that other games have used but I feel the only reason why Monopoly has endured, I think, the long life as it has, especially over the past 20 years, is that the manufacturers realize if we do all these themed variations of Monopoly, Simpsons Monopoly, Star Wars Monopoly, you know, Game of Thrones Monopoly, it's something that, oh, look, it's Monopoly, but this. And sure, somebody might buy it, and yeah, there might be a little twist in the rules here and there, but then you start playing and like, oh, yeah, it's Monopoly. Still Monopoly. Yeah, I think Monopoly almost does the industry, I think, more harm than good now. Because I think if you tell somebody now who's not a board game player and you say, hey, let's, you know, we're going to play some games at my house, some board games, that that's what pops into their mind is like Monopoly risk in life. And they're just like, ugh. No, you know, so you, so you almost have to give that preamble, you know, we're going to play board games, but then qualify it with, you know, but it's, you know, different games that you've probably never played before, and they're fun. It's, I, I think it kind of gives board games a bad name almost, because a lot of people just kind of dread it. And Well, I think the problem Monopoly has, too, a lot is that, once again, it falls in that same trap that Catan falls into, is that after a while, everybody owns all the land, but the problem is, is that nobody's dominant, and nobody wants to take a risk and say, hey, I'll trade you this or this. It'll give you a Monopoly and me a Monopoly. Well, no way, you're getting a Monopoly. Well, yeah, but how's the game going to end? You're yeah. just going to sit there and have the slow bleed out of just going around that board. It just ends in a stalemate for hours. Right, just trading money over and over again until you just wish for the sweet embrace of death to just grip you and take you to Valhalla. Uh, Monopoly. So, um, yeah, so that covers a lot of what we want to talk about board games. I'm sure there's so many others out there that people know, like, and love. And I think we just want to address that there is a lot of great things out there. Um, one thing we touched on briefly, like Tabletop as an example, which is just no longer on the air, but Will Wheaton had a show for about four seasons called Tabletop, where we about 
20 episodes a season and each episode he would play through you know a game uh, a board game with two or three different celebrity friends of his and you would help learn the game that way but there was also effect people would watch this and then after they watched it they said well i'm gonna go to a store and buy the game yeah, so the tabletop effect right so what happened is then stores like games by james or other hobby stores amazon.com would all of a sudden see an increase in purchases on these games and it helped the industry flourish and once again it helped people understand because i think one of the great things about a show like that is that it teaches you how to play the game i think the problem is is sometimes with games everybody has their own interpretation of a rule and there's a certain ambiguity to it but when you watch tabletop like oh that's how it goes there's another show i can't remember what's called on geek and sundry on their twitch channel they also play board games and kind of do a sort of a learning walkthrough as well yes and I'm, i've never seen it and i can't remember the name of it either uh, yeah it's really critical role maybe no not critical role that's the one that's the matt mercer led uh, dungeons and dragons okay. every week one um yeah now that's just gonna drive me nuts now if only okay. had a piece of yeah. device in front of me right now which could help me look this up yeah well you, you can look it up if you want I'll, I'll i'll vamp for you but i would say also with tabletop i think if you're whether you're new to gaming or if you've been playing it for a while it's worth even though it's been a while since season come out definitely look it up i mean it's a way to kind of if it's a game you know it's worth watching just to see people play games that you've you're familiar with and have them enjoy so the banter's a lot of fun in some of them but it's also a way to like Get an idea for games that maybe you've seen on the shelf, like, hey, I've heard of this game before, but I've never played it, and I wonder what it's like. You know, and they're only like, I don't say 20 minutes to half an hour long. So it's real easy to kind of watch, and even if it's a game that you end up not wanting to play, it's Will Wheaton and the people he has on, you know, they're kind of, you know, a lot of celebrities and whatnot. It's kind of fun to watch them just play these games and banter back and forth and kind of, you know, all that. There's, you know, so it's a good way to learn new games, get the basics for the rules, and you're still going to want to check out the rule book and whatnot, but it's one that you can definitely go back to, check it out. And, uh, you know, like I said, revisit some, some favorites you've had and watch some people play it or, you know, check out some new games that you haven't heard of. And then maybe next time you're at the store, you can check it out. Um, so yeah. And did you have any luck? Yeah. It, it's such a simple name. It was called how to play. Oh, there we go. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, they've done a lot of different things and same thing. It's like, Hey, you know what? Fun game. Not sure how to get into it. Guess what? How to play. We'll teach you. And I think that's another thing too, that's worth touching on is that there's a lot of, you know, not necessarily that specific one, but there's a lot of how to how to play these game like videos that you can watch. Like that was, in fact, the game I just bought recently was called Trekking. It's a, kind of similar to uh, Ticket to Ride in their rule book. It said, you know, check out the internet for our how to play video, and it was like a five minute video that taught you how to play. It. You know, some of them are longer depending on how complex the rules are. But if you're not into pouring over a rule book, that's definitely a resource you can do. Is head up uh, YouTube and check out like rules videos, and people teach you how to play it and whatnot. And there's some very good ones of those. Indeed. So let's wrap this up. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Follow us on social media. We are Geek Roulette on Facebook as well as at Geek Roulette on Twitter. By all means, feel free to give us any feedback, and we do appreciate your listenership. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. Goodbye.